Hello and welcome to the King Hero IndyCar podcast with Kirby and Justin. Kirby, how are you? Doing great today, Justin. How about yourself? Can't uh, can't complain, Kirb. Can't complain. Uh, one of the reasons I can't complain is that uh, we were fortunate enough to interview a new uh, Motorsports Hall of Fame inductee, Mr. Robin Miller, and uh, had a nice little conversation with him, Kirb, didn't you think? Oh, yeah, it was great. Uh, he was very, very uh, gracious with his time and uh, and uh, couldn't have been more fun to talk to. Yeah, it was really uh, it was great to catch up with it uh, with Robin. And, uh, you know, we, we tried to I think you and I made a conscious effort to kind of go away from some of the stuff uh, that, you know, have, you know, the current topics of the day and kind of do a little di- uh, deeper dive on on uh, some other subjects. And I think we somewhat achieved uh, what we were after. What do you think? Oh, definitely. Uh, nice to talk about his uh, early days and um, racing and how his dad uh, introduced him to the sport and his first year attending as a ticket-buying customer and that type of thing. So, yeah, some stuff we know already and uh, always good to hear again, but some new stuff too. Yeah, agreed. Well, um, I think without further ado, I'm going to introduce uh, this uh, the interview. Uh, those are that are concerned, uh, there's... Uh, language and and I wouldn't I wouldn't say any adult themes would you curb but just language just language uh, uh, yeah. but you know this is the internet right yeah this is the internet and a fair amount of f bombs in this so uh, for for those of you with uh, young children this is probably not the the episode to play you know go to some of our other episodes which are uh, pure as the driven snow as they say <laughs> most of them anyway okay so without any further ado Robin Miller. Kirby and I feel uh, particularly uh, honored. We're in uh, we're in the presence of greatness, uh, considering that you are now an inductee to the Motorsports Hall of Fame. Well, if you get to be old enough and you're on the death list, I think sometimes that it's process of eliminate. <laughs> well, I think you're being uh, self-deprecating. Uh, no, I think no, it's a it's a fabulous honor, very humbling, very gratifying, no doubt about it. Very surprising. So we've got a question. Is there a building? Is there a Hall of Fame building? It's in Daytona Beach, yeah. Okay. Museum. So yeah. what are they doing for you? Like a statue? Oh God, no! Yeah, they give you. I think <laughs> they put you on a big. I think you put, go on the big trophy and they give you a plaque and then they have a big dinner. Everybody gets up and says something. It, it's a really nice deal. Well, congratulations. I mean, I, it, it, you deserve it. I'm uh, I'm hoping that they do a good deal for you because it's really an honor and the fact that you're a writer and in there is uh, pretty amazing, right? Well, it's just there's there's so few out there's so many good writers that don't have an outlet anymore. It's sad because there's no newspapers, there's no magazines. The daily newspapers are dying by the vine, on the vine. There's no motorsports full-time motorsports writers hardly anymore. It's just it's really sad. It really is. Yeah, we're really excited to get to talk to you. I appreciate the time, just like Justin said. I went back and read over Zach Kiefer's profile from last summer and and listened to the Dinners with Racers podcast from a year or two ago, I think. God, that was fun. They they do a good job, don't they? The Dinners with Racers, that's the way racing should be covered. Just let let it go. You know, that's what I like. But, you know, throughout all those types of uh, stories about your past, um, you're always... Justin said, self-deprecating, 
Uh, you, you claim not to have any mechanical skills. You claim not to have any driving skills. Um, but yet. Oh, no. Oh, no. I, I never claimed that I didn't have any driving skills. I was a half-assed midget driver, but I had, I had my share of, de- of decent runs. No, I raced in USAC when it was, it was really competitive. All the, all the IndyCar guys were still running midgets when I started, and I never had any experience. No, my driving was, considering I was a mechanical moron, I did okay, and I, I had my own car. I should have just driven for some, I should have just given somebody money and driven for somebody else. No, I, but mechanically, it's hard to imagine anyone could be dumber. <laughs> well, well, how was it that as a young man, um, as you claim, dropped out of college and hanging around the star offices trying to do whatever they'd let you do, how did you come to you know, become friends, become develop relationships with all these guys that were to race fans at that time? They're probably, probably bigger than life. Well, I started going to Terre Haute and the fairgrounds and IRP in the 60s. And then Jim Herdebees was my favorite. So I would steal beer after the race and take it to him. And I just wanted him to make eye contact with me and, 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 and see my face enough that he, he, may not, he might not know my name, but he at least recognized my face. So in 68, I was standing outside of Gasoline Alley as, right before practice started a couple of days before, and he came walking in by himself. And he stopped and he goes, hey, hey, what's up? You always get me bare. I ain't Herc, how you doing? He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm just standing outside. He goes, how'd you like to come work for me for a week? I said, why? He goes, how'd you like to come work for me for the first week? That's one of the three weeks of practice in May. I said, right. I, yeah, sign me up. Yeah, what, do I, what would I do? He says, well, I'm going to have another guy, and there's only going to be two of you, and I, you'll have to push the car, put the body work on, show me the pit board, help start the car. I'm thinking, I don't know if I can do any of that, but I, shit, I didn't care. I was going to do whatever he asked. He said, I can't pay anything. I said, trust me, I'll pay you. I, you don't have to pay me anything. So he gave me a, he gave me a hat, a Goodyear jacket, and a mechanic's laundry rag to step in my back pocket. And I had to pull my hat down because I, I was 18 in 1968, and I looked like I was 12. My life was pretty much complete. Here I am pushing my hero through the gasoline alley out to the pits. We're pushing the Mallard, the, the last roadster, make the Indy 500 down the pits, and I'm like, this is un... This, somebody better... I hope somebody takes a picture of this because I don't think it's going to last. Well, of course it didn't because I, I messed up the paint job with the Zeus wrench, and I taped his hair onto his helmet once when he was in a hurry. He was really getting mad. And I was just trying to... I never wanted to, I, I never wanted to do anything but, but make him happy, and all I ever did was piss him off. So he finally had he finally had to let me go, and you know, hell, I was free help, and he fired me. So <laughs> that's what, that's what. But then I cut school. I was a senior in high school, so I cut school the last day when he made he qualified on the Monday, and and that was the last road last friend engine car to make the Indy 500. And he saw me standing by the fence and waved me over, but I got there too late for the qualifying picture. But he gave me a big hug, and I was like, oh, all is forgiven. That's the greatest. And then, of course, I started working as a star, and Herc and I became really, really good friends. And, you know, I didn't know if I, I never thought about driving so much or even, I just knew I liked being around the speedway and I liked being around racing. And then I got a job at the star answering the score phones. You know, I moved into the sports department because one night three of the guys got drunk and didn't come back, and they had to have somebody to help with the paper out. And I'd been the high school sports editor of my paper. So I came in, and they kind of got amalgamated into the sports department, and then the first thing I did was started bugging them, let me go write some stories in the Speedway, and they're like, 
what makes you think you can write? What? You've got to be kidding me. You think we're going to publish this shit in the biggest newspaper in Indiana? Are you out of your mind? Try again. Humble you a little bit. Well, that's good heart. No, heart, tough love is a good lesson then. And then, you know, then they, then they, then they would sit down and tell you this, why this sucked or why this didn't make any sense or really good. So, you know, I just bombarded them with stories. Then I started covering midgets and sprints on my days off. And then I really got, you know, I got to know Buki and Gary Bentonhausen and Parsons and Bobby Grimm. And I was hanging out eating lunch and dinner with those guys all the time. So I just suddenly, racing became everything to me. And Art Pollard was one of my best friends. I kept telling him, I think I'd like to try racing. He goes, well, sell your, I had a load of sports cars. He said, sell your sports car and we'll go get your race car. So we went up to Chicago and bought a Formula Ford from Andy Granicelli. And uh, we went to Raceway Park. Paul Page loaned me his trailer. I got a great picture of Hart standing over me. We're getting ready to fire it up and take it out. And he said, now, kid, did you put oil and water in it? And I said, don't they come with oil and water? (laughs) You know, he was just like, oh, my God. So we had to drive back to Speedway and get a case of Valvoline oil and some water. That was our first day on the track, the Oval. And uh, it was all painted up STP red, like Herbie's Novi was. God, what a race car. That I was so excited. You know, I raced a few times in 72 and 73. But, uh, I, you know, I didn't uh, go to that many races, and, and uh, I don't know. So, I set out uh, 74, I just, I didn't, I sold my car, sold my Formula Ford, and then Gary Bettenhausen was always telling me, man, if you want to learn how to race, you know, you need to get a midget or a sprint car and, and, and start racing. That's how you learn. So, I bought Merle Bettenhausen's old midgets that he made his comeback in. And I was I became the unofficial fourth Benthausen brother and uh it was a good little midget. First night that I ran the dirt in Kokomo I made the feature and there were twenty one twenty two cars and thirteen of the twenty two cars in the race were guys that were in that year's Indy five hundred. That was pr- I mean, I was pretty proud of myself that night. I was the first time I'd ever been on dirt and I made the feature. And after the race, Gary came down and said, God damn, you might be able to do this. You did a really good job. I said, thanks, Schmuck. <laughs> His nickname, of course, was a Schmuck. <laughs> right. And uh, the next three or four days later, we were at Raceway Park, and I missed the show. I was sitting on my trailer kind of feeling sorry for myself, and, and Gary came down out of the grandstand and said, take my name off the car. And I said, what? He goes, take my name off the car. He goes, you're a goddamn embarrassment. You look like a pussy out there. I said, Schmuck, last Last week at Pokemon, you told me I had potential. Goes, I was wrong. <laughs> More tough love. You can't ask for a better, a better education when you have no. I didn't run quarter midgets or go karts. I just started off in USAC. I mean, that's it's insane to think that it's insane to think that I started out that way. Uh, but you know, it, it was okay. It was I, I never changed anything. Well, I guess that's what I was going to ask you, Robin. I mean, uh, you know, you talk about you were 18 at the time. What, what Drew you to racing? Did you go to the track as a kid? Did you, you know, were, you know, what was preteen Robin right like? Oh no, no, no! I mean, my dad took me to the speedway in 1957, and the first car we saw on the straightaway was the Novi with Paul Russo, and that was it. That noise, all the chairs rattling in the paddock. They used to have chairs up in the paddock, and they just the Novi was so loud. He took me to practice and qualifying every year, and we couldn't get race tickets, so on race day. We would park behind the track and, and jump across the railroad tracks, and there was a fence, and you could walk across the golf course and walk right up to the backstretch fence and watch for free. So we did that until 1964, and then my, we got our first, my dad 
scored four tickets. And my mom actually went, and that was the year Eddie Sachs and Dave McDonald perished right in front of us. And my mom was like, I'm never going to, you know, my mom wanted to leave right then, and the kid we took with us, he was all upset. And my dad's looking at me and said, Dad, we can't leave yet. You know, it was a big, it was a, like a two-hour two hour fall sure. in between the, the red flag and the race restarting. But started, you know, then I got to go to the race in 65, 66, 67. And then uh, Herc rescued me in 68, and, and I started covering it in 69 for the star, and that was it. And I was, uh, huh. when I started racing in USAC, uh, at the Star, I had a column 52 weeks a year in the Star about USAC racing. They just sprints, Indy cars. So it was the best of both worlds. I got to go racing and write about and write about it and uh, got paid to do it, which was <laughs> hard to imagine. Going a little further down the line, you talk about your career, and it seems like you, you know, you're one of these people blessed with kind of getting to do what they like to do for for a career, and I, I you know, I respect that. The question I, when I always think of you, I always think of Robin Miller and the Split. You know, you were the voice of uh, of of sanity, I guess, uh, through the Split, in my opinion. And I always marveled at how you were able to do that at seemingly uh, a lot of risk and peril to your career. Did when that was going on, did you ever think about your career, or were you just going to say what you're going to say? You know, damn the rest of it. Well. I lost my radio show. I lost my TV gig. I had a, I had a daily radio show, and they threw me off of that because I wouldn't get off of Tony George's ass. And and I finally lost my TV job, and eventually uh, it cost me my job at the Star because the Star and uh, the and the Absolute Speedway wanted to become partners online and 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 do trade outs and do business and 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 basically. Tony told the star, as long as he's working for you, we'll never do a deal. So three days after they fired me, they signed an agreement. The star became the newspaper. of They, they sponsored opening day and carb day and all that stuff. So it was career suicide, to tell the truth, in Indianapolis because all the shills in this town, oh, there's nothing different about the Indy 500. In 1996, they're telling people, oh, there's, it's the same race. It's all the same drug. Bullshit. Right. They had taken they had taken the Kentucky Derby and put a bunch of goddamn mules in it. Yeah, there were some great guys in there like Tony Stewart, but for every Tony Stewart, there was Bronco Brad Murphy and Rayson Gardner and all these guys had no... It was, an, it was the insult of all time. You can't imagine the shit that I took, but I didn't care because I knew I was right. Foyt and Al Unser and Rutherford and I did a TV show one night, and we fucking argued like cats and dogs for an hour on television. And during one of the commercial breaks, because one of the points I'd made, I said, listen, if you guys hadn't all been in the same race, been in the Indy 500 and you won the race, it wouldn't have meant nearly as much. You wouldn't have beaten the best guys. So during the break, Al Unser said, you know, he's right. And Foyt said, don't be agreeing with him. <laughs> don't tell him what to say. It was disheartening because then after everything came back together, then all the people that motherfucked me and turned their back on me and, and said I was a piece of shit. They all came back, and they're all my buddies again. They must have really thought I either had a short memory or I was that stupid. But I kind of played along, and, you know, I, oh, yeah, great, yeah, it's fabulous. But not easy to tell the truth sometimes. And it wasn't easy to tell the truth then, except when you know what the Indy 500 should be, you know what it should take to make it, and you know how exciting it could be for the people that pay money to go watch it. 
and you saw the hole that was drilled in it and, and the lack of interest, the TV ratings plummeted, the ticket sales plummeted, nobody showed up at practice, nobody showed up at qualifying. It was so sad to see what happened in those years, those first, you know, and, and all the IRL zealous, oh, bullshit, you know, the cart guys, they were going to boycott the 500. No, they weren't. Are you stupid? Their sponsorship, a lot of their sponsorship was based on the 500. They never threatened to boycott the Indy 500. Now, were the cart guys the smartest guys? No. They sold their old cars to the IRL guys, and that's the only reason they even had a theory. They probably needed to embrace Tony George more than they did, but they didn't. And, right. you know, that it, it's just, it cost open wheel racing so much in terms of fans, sponsors, and it's never recovered. It, it never will recover. The standard line is, well, you know, Tony George won the open wheel war. Really? No. NASCAR won the fucking open wheel war. Okay? Period. NASCAR went from being neck and neck with cart and everything to being light years ahead of open wheel racing. And we'll never catch it. Well, we certainly agree with you there. We were uh, products of the 80s and early 90s, and um, by the time the split came around, you know, I even I even went so far as to attend the U.S. 500. Um, so that's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, that. yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here looking at my program right now. Um, but um, you know, you lose one job, you got two jobs left. You lose the second one, you got one job left. I mean, did you ever have a, you know, did you ever stop a minute and say, how hard do I really want to keep pushing this? No. No, no, it was way too, you ain't, you're going to lose all your credibility if you suddenly stop and go the other way. Well, you know, maybe I was wrong about, no, I wasn't wrong about it. And, you know, I was, I was working at ESPN and then that became a full-time job and RPM Tonight was a really cool show and I got to be part of that and they actually started having open wheel Wednesday, Wednesday nights and gave me a little forum there. So very lucky and I got to write for their website and I could write anything I wanted. Yeah, I mean, it was great and then. ESPN lost NASCAR, so they shut it. They shut down RPM tonight, and Speed came along, and Dave Spain treated me like a like a one of his own, and made me part of Wind Tunnel, and probably the best show that's ever been about racing on television. You, you get such a big audience when you can write and you can be on television, and and Wind Tunnel was such a popular show, and the ratings were really good. That's what was so sad when Fox closed it down. Dave Despain uh, did a great job. I, I wasn't so interested in all the NASCAR stuff, but whenever you were on, uh, definitely was destination viewing for me, I think. You know, this you get through the split. Um, you get through reunification. Tony George's family takes the checkbook away and fires him and uh, installs Randy Bernard. Did Randy Bernard have a chance to succeed? Um, or my sense was that the, the sisters uh, wanted to stop losing money, and it seemed like his focus was to to start making money and stop losing it rather than maybe looking at it in the big picture for the long term. Is that fair? Randy would have had Derek Walker or Tony Cotman as his buffer between the coroners and all the vipers that are out there to get him. He'd probably still be there because he's a very smart businessman. He took pro bull riding from a $200,000 a year thing to a multi-million dollar corporation. And now he works with Garth Brooks, his personal manager. Right. Randy had some good ideas. Had some better. And then I saw the I saw the contract the Continental Tire offered. Randy went to Continental Tire after Firestone said that they were getting out of IndyCar racing, and the amount of money that Continental Tire was prepared to pay IndyCar was staggering. And Randy put the whole thing together, and then they all came down on him. Yo, you're trying to get rid of Firestone. That's no. He was re- he was reacting to what he was told 
they were going to need a new tire. But there were four or five guys that ganged up on him. That was the saddest thing of all is that he didn't have any, he had no allies. He had no understanding really of, he walked into a hornet's nest, I mean, and he didn't know anything about racing. He was learning on the fly. Really a smart guy and and somebody that he gave his word. He was actually probably way too honest for that job. <laughs> way too honest. Well, I, rem- I remember that tire debacle, and um, not only did they choose not to take the income from from Continental, but they agreed to pay Firestone more money, didn't they? Yep. And you know, yep. all you all, all you would hear was bitching about how expensive things were uh, for dry- for car owners and so on. And tire bills, uh, tire bills are a joke. Tire bills are a fucking joke. They and Firestone makes a great product. Don't get me wrong, but Randy, I talk to Randy all the time, and he. He misses a lot of the people in racing, and he really was starting to get into it. And he's all part of about Nashville having a race because that's where he lives. But if you look at all the people that run racing, IndyCar racing throughout the years, then you really don't have to scratch your head and wonder why we're so far behind NASCAR because some of the fucking village idiots we've had in charge of this thing, and you wonder how they come up with it. Where do they find these people? Randy was such a breath of fresh air because he didn't have any ties to anybody. He had no, played no politics. He just had an open sheet of paper, and he was trying to do whatever good to try and, you know, make the make the thing better. And, you know, he really didn't get the chance to do it. And, um, you know, like I, we talked yesterday, and he called me yesterday, and I we were just talking, and I said, you know, it all worked out because you're working for Garth Brooks and having a great time. And he goes, you know, it really has. He goes, I, I, he goes, I miss a lot of things about racing, but I don't miss all those car owners trying to throw me out. Yeah, I'm sure he's got a much better quality of life these days. So, you know, that's always interested me when you talk about the village idiots that ran uh, cart or champ car, whatever version it was over oh, the years. Don't forget, don't forget USAC. No, USAC, don't okay. USAC and cart. Oh yeah. Well, so I'm I'm not quite as much of a USAC guy as you are, but but definitely a cart guy. And um, you know, I always wondered why you know a guy like Penske didn't take control and. Or short, you know, I suppose Penske thought he had better things to do and better ways to make more money. But um, why would he, why would a guy like Penske allow all these village idiots to be hired to run the series? He really didn't have. When Dan Gurney wrote the white paper, you know, Roger Penske and Pat Patrick started funding it. That was the start of the best times of oatmeal racing in terms of attendance. I mean, it, it took a while, but in the t- by the early nineties, Bernie Eccleston was scared to death of part, and so was NASCAR. Sure. And Penske and Patrick had funded that thing. If, if Dan Gurney and Roger Penske would have sold their race teams and run IndyCar racing, you'd have never heard of NASCAR. They'd have buried them. But they didn't right. want to do that. They, you know, Roger's a ra- he was a racer then. He didn't want to run racing. He didn't want to be in the – that's not what he wanted to do. He wanted to have race teams and run races and call races, and Gurney wanted to build cars. So they didn't. So what happens is, is you get guys like Bill Stokan and Andrew Craig, and before that, ambulance drivers like Dick King or card salesmen like Charlie Brockman, and you're like, what do you expect? I mean, it's never, I mean, it just makes me crazy. USAC had the greatest racing series for 50 or 60 years, and the worst management you could ever get. They finally got smart and hired Levi Jones. USAC lost everything. They lost the IndyCar series. They lost the Indy 500. I've been trying to tell car and driver the same story for 15 years about the demise of open wheel racing and, and who's to blame, and they won't run it because they said it's too depressing. I said, "Well, fuck yes, it's depressing." <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, that was that was my question for you, Robin. Um, 
you know, we're looking at the future, and, and Kirby and I are of a certain age now, and uh, in our 50s, and we're looking at the future. We're seeing electric. You know, we're seeing this driverless car thing, and oh. I, I think it just it just makes us a little sick to our stomachs, to be honest. And uh, I'm just wondering if you're looking at the future, and it sounds like you, you've already said it. I mean. Is are you just to the point where you just can't even face it and you just don't want to know about it, or do you have hope? Well, no, I I, I think look, short track racing's made a little comeback lately. Midgets and sprints are doing pretty good. That's still the best racing there is. AMA flat tracks is still exciting as hell. Indy cars has more; they have more cars and teams than I ever dreamed they'd have, considering how little money they make and how much it costs to do it. Uh, and you got Honda and, and General Motors still wanting to make real engines and not go to, you know, not go to silent engines or electric engines or whatever. This outbreak last year of, of iRacing and all these, and, and NBC and, and television, Fox and NBC, putting it on television and we're supposed to act like somebody gives a fuck? Who cares? I mean, it's the most god-awful, it's so, hey, if Joe Blow sits at home and gets to race his little car and act like and act like he's a race driver, good for him. But I don't give a fuck, and I sure ain't going to watch it, and I goddamn sure ain't going to write about it. So I made that real clear to racer. I had to cover one of them fucking stupid races, <laughs> and I said, my byline will not appear on this story, or I'm done. I, you, put, you can put by racer staff before. I ain't writing my name on this. I am not covering iRacing. Jesus. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, you're... What, what are you going? To, what's going to happen when you crash in an eye race? You know, spill your Cheetos or something, and and then restart your computer. Fuck those people. I mean, <laughs> I should I shouldn't be so negative, but it just it grinds my ass because you know they're like, well, it's their way to they can participate in race. Well, it's great, but I don't have to like it. And I sure as fuck don't have to watch it. <laughs> well, it's an insult to the people that you knew uh, growing up through the business uh, who you know were out there every day risking their lives. Uh, for absolutely. that sport. Absolutely. Absolutely. Eye racing and, and, and driverless car racing. Yeah, that's exactly what I want to watch. I mean, it's just, it's so nauseating to think about. I'll be dead, thank God, but if it ever changes, I won't be here and I won't have to ever think about, you know, hearing about it. <laughs> you wonder why, and I wonder why, they're pushing this driverless car thing. I just think it's uh, just another, you know, uh, signature on the death certificate to me. You know, I don't, why would I don't, why would they push I that? Know, I don't know enough about it to give you an answer as far as why they, who pushes it or why. But uh, racing became the most popular thing in the world in the sixties and seventies because it was loud, it was dangerous, it was exciting, and not everybody could do it. That's why Parnelli and AJ and Mario and Rutherford and the youngsters. You know, wherever they go, people know, still know who they are because they were revered. Because that was they were the gladiators of the day. Scott Dixon is a phenomenal race driver, probably one one of the five best of the last thirty years. But he can walk down any street in the United States, and they got no idea who he is because nobody nobody knows. The sad thing is, fellas, nobody cares like we do anymore. Kids don't care, but they don't, they don't grow up with us. It's not, you know, look at the ratings on NBC last year; they're abysmal. Lowest Indy 500 rating of all time, a 2.2. And NBC promoted the hell out of that race. 
I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how you get young people interested in racing, but you can't get them off their iPhones and their computers, and they're not going to drive to Eldora or Terre Haute like I used to. They're just not going to do it. It's it's a different time, and I'm just glad I was born. I told Foyt the other day, I'm just, I always remind him, I said, AJ, you were, you were born in the perfect era, and I was born pretty close to it because the 50s, 60s, and 70s were the golden age of racing for me. Well, I think uh, a lot of people agree with you, and my dad's a little bit older than you. I think he thinks that it was the golden era of America, period. And um, Absolutely, exactly, exactly. And I guess it's why we still reminisce about it and, um, and spend so much time talking about those guys. It's a, good, it's a good reason to have the mailbag every week because so many of the questions are about the old days, and those are the most fun ones to answer. <laughs> there are times I wonder whether you regret starting the mailbag, but <laughs> but it certainly no, is a no, certainly is a popular like, feature. It is, and it's it, you know you think well it'll be, it'll be when I started I thought well I'll just do this during the season, but then you it's amazing how many people write in the winter time and how many people ask. For, there's some really good questions, and there's and then there's some really interesting work on the mailbag now. And there was a couple of really good questions, kind of heartening to think that that many people still take the time to write and care about it, and they do it every week. So, God bless Honda for being our sponsor because they keep it, they keep me paid, and and Racer keeps it going. So I mean, it's uh, fun because you hear, you know, people are pretty sincere. I think when they send, you know, your letter, hey, I really like, enjoy the mailbag. I look forward to it on Wednesdays. My God, that's all you could ever hope for. Robin, just real quick, uh, today's driver versus, you know, your heroes, drivers of the 60s and 70s, um, do you see sim- any similarities there, or are, are we just talking two different animals? Yeah, two different animals. Uh, I asked Boyd once, any of these guys, any of these mama's boys today could make it in the 60s, and he said, maybe Canon. <laughs> and that's because Tony lost his dad. And slept in a garage and, and 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 worked his way up and didn't nobody gave him anything. And I think that really appealed to AJ that he made it on his own the hard way like those guys used to. But it's not to say that who knows if they if they told Will Power and Scott Dixon, look, you're gonna have to run midgets and sprints and sleep in your car. I think they probably would have done it. I mean, it's just what your it's what you're faced with. It's what your obstacles are. It's what your options are. But I think both those guys. I think Power and Dixon would have both been successful guys in the 60s and 70s on the dirt because they both loved, I mean, Will grew up on the dirt, and Dixie would, as good as Scott is, he'd, he'd pick it up. So it's impossible to compare eras, and, and you know, this guy's better. This guy, the, the variables are different, and the, the reason that we idolize the 60s guys so much is because they had to run dirt and pavement, midgets and sprints. Champ cars at Springfield and Sacramento and Syracuse and DeCoyne and Indianapolis, and then they had road courses and then they had big ovals and short ovals. I mean, there were 28 races in 1968. 28 races, and that included Pikes Peak too. So you talk about diversity and and happen to be on top of your game. And you know, the thing about Mario and AJ and Parnell, they raced every weekend. They raced. They couldn't wait. It didn't matter what what it was or how much it paid. That they were going racing, and that was what was, you know, nowadays guys' contracts are pretty restrictive, and it's not easy for them to, to jump around. I just saw Chase Elliott's going to run a USAC race down at uh, Bubba Speedway, and well, that's cool. I mean, he ran the Chili Bowl. A few of these guys trying, you know, Jimmy Johnson, bust his heart. He, you talk about a guy that's got some courage jumping out of your weight class and, and getting into IndyCar at his age. 
and, 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 and he should be doing the ovals, which I think he'd have a chance on. Instead, he's doing road courses, which is, my God, it's, 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 that is such a steep mountain to climb. But you know what? Good for him. He's a racer, man. He he done everything in NASCAR, and he wanted to try something else, and it's, it's a pretty cool story. You do your tough guy series for guys from the 60s and 70s, and and I think, you know, like you just said, you know, the guys from today aren't that probably weren't that tough uh, compared to those guys. But were they also popular back then because they were maybe more accessible than today's athletes or drivers are? Yeah, that's a fair question because there was no, you know, in the old days they had to sit on the pit wall. There weren't motor homes or hospitality centers. They sit on the pit wall. So you sit down and bullshit with them after practice or qualifying or, you know, there's no war for them to hide. And then when they started getting motor homes and the drivers could get their motor scooters and hide, yeah, that's one of the biggest. But these people all grew up with these guys watching them at Terre Haute and Raceway Park and the, and the fairgrounds in Eldora. And, and they, you know, they got to know them, and then they became famous as IndyCar drivers. So they those fans were with them for 30 or 40 years, and they felt a connection. And today's fans, yeah, I mean, they feel, I mean, like Kanan is really, he looks people in the eye, and he signs their autograph, and, and, and I mean, he gets it. Tony really gets it, you know. But right. New Guard and Tinchcliffe are great personalities. Graham's a good guy, and there's, 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 they're good with the fans. It's just that it's a different. It's just different how fans are allowed to approach drivers now, I guess, or the accessibility. Just because, again, the drivers had nowhere to hide back in the old days when the race was over. They were standing by their car, and people came down to the grandstands, got their autograph, bought them a beer, and started bullshitting with them. That's how they got to know them. Go look up an old race uh, on YouTube or something, and and they're you know going down who's in the field and. Here's Tom Sneave, a school teacher from Phoenix, and here's so I mean, listing their day jobs while they're out there racing Indy cars, and and so these guys not only were racers, but they had day jobs too. A lot of them, didn't they? Well, yeah, you know, there's a lot of times when guys had to. Uh, Bobby Grimm, I think, uh, Paul Grimm drove a, a semi during the off season. A couple guys sold. Bob Harkey sold cars. Bud Tinglestad sold cars. You know, I mean, yeah, you didn't make a lot of money as a race driver. I mean, AJ did good. Mario did good. Parnelli, but not everybody was in that bracket. So you right. had to you had to figure out how to stay alive. Robin, um, that brings up a question I always had. You know, some of these guys like Mario and Dan Gurney and a few other, I think Parnelli you've mentioned in the past, these guys got through a very dangerous period of racing really without serious injury. Do you attribute that to something in their driving style or just flat-out luck? Well, Mario's flat-out luck, some of the horrendous crashes he walked away from, I mean, somebody was looking out for him. Foyt has been hurt more than AJ's had more bad things happen to him in a race car and out of a race car. And Gurney was, Dan was very smooth and very, and, 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 and obviously one of the greats, but uh, you know, if your suspension breaks on a straightaway instead of a corner, I mean, you know, it, you got to have some luck. Uh, you know, Al Unser was took care of his equipment and had a couple bad crashes that weren't his fault. But you know, there there was just, I mean, Herdebees was my hero, and he, nobody drove a sprint car at Terre Haute like he did. He was a madman, and he drove an Indy car sideways at the speedway in 1960. He said, "This guy's going to kill himself." Well, no, he actually. One um, broke the track record by three miles an hour, but they had a mindset that that's how they drove. They weren't gonna, you know. There was so many guys. If you look at the lineups in the of the Indy 500 in the 60s, and you see how many guys didn't make it, you're just you're. Just, I mean, your career 
the average career was about three years. It was staggering. You had to really want to do it. And these guys, these guys just had, they had something about them that even if they got burned like Lee Kuzman or broken in half like Poncho or AJ or, or Rutherford or all the guys that, that were maimed or Merle Bettenhausen had his arm ripped, they all came back because that's all they could do and that's all they wanted to do. Probably taking up enough of your time. I, I wanted to ask you one last question, and then we'll let you go. Um, you know, you lost all those jobs as a result of the split. Uh, certainly the biggest one to me was losing your job at the Star because not only people may not know this today, but not only did you cover racing for the Star, you were a columnist. You covered the Pacers, the Colts. You covered, uh, you know, college basketball. Um, when you lost those platforms, did you do you miss the last 20 years covering all those other sports besides racing? Oh, God, yeah. You, I mean, I got to cover Peyton's rookie year. And I wrote, yeah. a column at the, I wrote a column at the end of the season. They were 3-13, and 13, and I said, I don't care what the record is. We finally got, we finally got a real quarterback, and, they can, and we, we finally, the Colts finally have somebody they can trust the car keys to because this guy's going to drive them to places they've never been before. Something like that was the last line of my story. So, I mean, you could tell when he was a rookie, I don't care they only won three games, you could tell how special he was going to be. So that would have been fun to cover him during his the Colts' resurgence. And the Pacers were always – I wrote a book on the ABA Pacers, so it's the only book I ever wrote. And those are the best times in the late 60s, early 70s, covering the, going with Slick Leonard and the boys, going with the Pacers that, and Neto. I mean, nothing got better. High school basketball journey used to be a, a blast to cover. I enjoyed giving Bob Knight shit because nobody <laughs> else did. <laughs> right, that's for sure. Or, or if they did, they weren't along around very long. That's for sure. They weren't around long. That's right. They vanished. Well, Robin, I can't thank you enough for your time, and uh, you've been very generous with it. And uh, really, I think just Curb and I are just so excited just to talk to you uh, finally after all these years of re- reading uh, from you. And just I, from my, from me, uh, I just want to thank you so much for everything you've done for the sport. Your voice is good. It's good to talk to young guys that really care about racing. We don't have enough of them, and give me a call. Well, we'll do that, and uh, you keep calling us young guys, and we'll call you more often. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take all that. I'll take all that I can get. Have a good week. Right. You Thanks, too, Robin. Robin. You Thanks. too. Well, there you go, Curb. Robin Miller. What do you think? A lot of fun to talk to him. Agreed. Agreed. Special thanks to our sponsors um, South Street Diner, Boston, Massachusetts. And Neologic Logic Beer, Golden, Colorado. Can't get any more environmental than Neologic. Logic. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll be back to you soon. Take care. <laughs>